never have anything in order. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to start off by reading a psalm, and then we're going to just go into worship. So Julia told me this morning in the car on the way here that she wanted me to read the psalm, because she knows that if I have any buildup on anything, I get nervous. <laughs> so she, uh, she just made sure, she's like, hey, I'm going to drive today. And she's like, hey, could you find a psalm? And so I was like, oh, no. And so like I prayed real fast, and I like did like a word search on Google. And I was not thinking Thanksgiving or anything at all. I actually wrote just like Psalm about find me. <laughs> and, uh, and this is what came up. And I love it. So it's uh, Psalm 118. I think it's through like 1 through 9. And it's, uh, keep on giving your thanks to God, for he is so good. His covenant tender love lasts forever. Let all his princely people sing. His covenant tender love lasts forever. Let all his holy priests sing. His covenant tender love lasts forever. Let all his lovers who bow low before him sing. His covenant love lasts forever. Out of my deep anguish and pain, I prayed, and God, you helped me as a father. You came to my rescue and broke open the way into a beautiful and broad place. Now I know, Lord, that you are that uh, <laughs> that you are for me, and I will never fear what man can do to me. For you stand beside me as my hero who rescues me. I've seen with my own eyes the defeat of my enemies. I've triumphed over over them all. Lord, it is so much better to trust in you to save me than to put my confidence in someone else. Well, if you're able, stand to your feet, and we'll worship him. Well, good morning and welcome to Regen. We are so glad to see you this morning, to be with you. Um, If it's your first time with us, we're so glad that you are with us and we'd love um, for you to take a mug that's out in the back and um, fill out a hey card so that we can stay connected with you. Um, If you are a regular attender and you're not getting the reconnect emails, I would encourage you to sign up as well on the hey cards um, so that we can, you can just kind of know what's happening because we're changing how we're doing our announcements a little bit. Um, But we are, I do want to encourage you, if you have a social media account and you want to do a check-in and use the hashtag RegenGives, um, this month those uh, donations go to Smarts, which our very own Lindsay uh, works with. Um, But Smarts uses um, the arts to help students, especially in schools that don't have arts programs. Um, So we're excited to be able to partner with them this month as well. And then I've asked Jairus Manning to just come up and share a little bit about his experience in circles. So we'll do that, and then Zach will come and pray for our offering. Good morning. Um, trying, I was sitting there the whole time trying to think of what to say. Uh, I just need to be prepared. But what, what I like about circles is just the community of people, like getting to know people in a genuine, authentic way. Which is, I mean, when we, when we first came to Regen is what I admired most about everybody, and uh, just the authenticity, and and uh, and so it kind of carries over to circles, and something that I um, can just be honest if I'm not having a you know okay ta- you know okay day or anything, it's it's okay to say I, um, it's not been a good day, you know, <laughs> which is comforting. So it's, for me, I've, I've worn a lot of masks, you know, over the years. And I know I've heard Kyle say, like, um, it's hard to wear a mask. It's, it's easy on Sunday morning to wear a mask. And I've, 
probably have done it a lot. So, but on Tuesday and getting to know people over and, you know, like having them come into the homes and eating and knowing, getting to know what's going on in their lives. And it's, it's really a nice thing. It's challenging for me because just the anxiety factor, um, just getting to know new people. And, and, um, so it's something that uh, an area that I'm growing in, I guess, and people, similar people, I mean, people have shared this similar thing, just having that anxiety about being in that setting, but I really, it's something that I've desired for a long time, having just a, a gathering of people and, and eating and um, looking at scripture and seeing how, what it's, what it's doing in, in your life and how, you know, and challenging you in a healthy way, so it's kind of, yeah. Hey guys, I'm going to pray, so you guys, um, if you want to join. And then I'm going to pass these out for the uh, offering. Um. Hey, Father. Um, I know sometimes we uh, forget who we are in life because we just aren't aware of your presence. So we thank you for being here with us today. We thank you for the word that we're going to hear and God, I just pray for myself and this uh, family here that uh, the word not only changes what we do, but changes what we want to do. And um, for the people, for that process that's already in happening in some of us, God, I just pray that you increase that and your relationship with us just lays heavily on each one of the hearts in here so we can feel, feel you and uh, just renew our commitment to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Yeah, God, what we have seen, what we see and what we seek need change today. Um, we have been looking to lesser things and chasing after empty things. And so invite you to come this morning and transform that and to change what we see and to change what we seek and help our eyes be lifted to you um, of, up off of the junk that we kind of obsess over. And so, Lord Jesus, would you come this morning um, and be here with us as our friend um, and remind us of who you are and whose we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, hey, welcome to Regen. My name is Kyle, and I get to be the pastor here. And um, I'm going to send the kids back with Miss Jenna. So off she goes. Um, and let me get all of my stuff. Um, I don't know. I, you maybe said something about this, honey. I, uh, but this week is our Thanksgiving dinner at Summit Academy. So that's where Melissa Allen works. And Summit Academy is a, a school for... Uh, some kids that we that live right across the street from Grace Campus. That's where the school is. And so we've been throwing them a Thanksgiving dinner. This is, our, I think, our third year now. And so um, the way that works is if you're free tomorrow night at 5, we'll meet at Grace Campus on the northwest side. We'll have some food for you. And we set the whole place up. And then starting at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, um, we kind of get the meal together we serve. You're usually done by 1.30-ish or so. So it's a really awesome day. Um, a lot of these kids may or may not end up with a Thanksgiving meal. And so it's a really cool opportunity just to be a blessing because um, scripture says that we are blessed in order that we might bless others. Paul says um, 
that we would be, praise that we would be enriched in every way so that we might always be able to be generous to other people. And so that's kind of the goal. So we stumbled into some grant money and actually somebody at Grace Campus every year has just started to say, hey, give me the receipt for whatever it costs. So um, in years past, there was like some donations and stuff. What we really just need is people that can be there and cook and hang out and it's, it's super fun. So if you wanna know more about that, grab me, grab stuff after. Um, thanks Jairus for um, being sprung upon to share about Circles. Circles are our weekly communities that meet in homes. Um, all over our county and um, our desire is just to continue to see those thrive and our desire is that would actually be um, a natural part of our life together is this move from temple or Sunday morning gathering to home and back and forth and so I um, really want to continue to encourage you to be in circles because that's really where um, we experience the depth of what Jesus calls us to experience so we're in this series called One Hot Mess. We're ending it today. And uh, I, I've enjoyed kind of what God's been doing in this is what we've been thinking through. And what we've been thinking through in this series, One Hot Mess, is this idea that whenever you get people together, in marriage, in a family, in, on a team, um, co- in a co-working environment, even in a church, there are going to be differences. And when those differences bump up against one another we end up in the mess. We end up in the mess. As long as there are people, and as long as we live this side of heaven, there is going to be mess. And one of the things that I've been convicted about as and been wrestling through, as convicted is a fancy Christian word for like something that God is kind of just highlighting for me to think about and process through. One of the things that I've sensed God kind of highlighting for me is that Really, I have a desire to get out of the hot mess just so that it makes my life easier, right? Just so that there would be less stress in my life. I don't want there to be a mess in our church. I don't want there to be a mess in our team dynamics. I don't want there to be a mess in my marriage. I don't want there to be a mess between Aaron and I. Aaron and I live and lives in our, as part of our family on mission. Like, I don't want there to be mess there. Not necessarily because I don't want there to be mess, but mostly because it just makes my life better. And one of the things that I've really been wrestling through is that running away from something is not good enough. Running away from something is a start. Like we want out of the hot mess. We want our life to have less messes. And uh, I really appreciate the feedback that I've been getting on this series in terms of like, this is really helping me in this conversation, da, 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 da. But what we need more than that, what we need more than that is not only something to run away from, we want to run away from the hot mess, but we need something to run to. That's very biblical language. Scripture is kind of full of this language of go ahead and take these things off and put these things on or flee from these things and pursue these things instead. And so one of the things I want to wrestle through this morning as we enter, as we exit this series is what are we running to? I mean, it's about mitigating the hot messes. It's about taking on humility. It's about practicing invitation and challenge. It's about taking on the discipline of confrontation. I get that. But after I've done all that, after I've had those conversations at work and at home and in all these different places, what is the culture that I'm trying to create? That's another thing that I've really been thinking a lot about is we have our son coming in January. What is the culture that I want to create in our home? Like, what is the atmosphere that I want our son to be raised in? What is the atmosphere in which I want our marriage to thrive? What is the atmosphere in which people that are in our home, whether it be for just a meal or for an extended period of time, what do I want them to experience? What kind of culture do I want to create? Jesus talks a lot about culture in the New Testament. Um, He talks about this thing called the kingdom of God. 
And the kingdom of God is wherever what God wants done is done. It's this culture that Jesus is trying to bring about in our midst. And and that's the aim of this morning is what does the kingdom of God look like in our homes? What does it look like for us to create a culture to pursue once we've left the hot mess behind? Maybe another way to think about this is this. So Jesus calls 12 disciples to be with him and to be like him and to do what he does. And he gets these 12 guys and these 12 dudes see Jesus living this life of intimacy with his father. This father that he says is also our father. And so they see Jesus disappear early in the morning to go and pray. They see Jesus... um, pursuing and prioritizing that. They even hear Jesus pray publicly and and they're so captivated by his life of prayer. They're so captured by that, that the disciples come to Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus, when you're praying, what is it that's going through your mind? Like, what are the categories that you're thinking about when you're praying? Because we want to, we want to have those categories in our heart and our life too. And one of the things that Jesus says that he thinks about is this kingdom culture. He thinks about bringing a culture of heaven into ordinary places like our marriages, like our families, like our working relationships, like our church. Cause I don't know if you know this or not. Church is not a culture of heaven. Okay. It's rough um, when you get people together. And so what Jesus kind of sums this up, Jesus sums this up by saying, well, when I pray, one of the things I pray is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kind of culture we're trying to create, a heaven, a heavenly culture in an ordinary place. That's what we want to pursue. And Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians, which is what we're going to look at today. Paul's writing to a church in this city called Corinth that has anything but a heavenly culture. In fact, they are perhaps one of the hottest, hot, hot, hottest messes in the New Testament. Um, Paul, it's like, it's like he's playing whack-a-mole with the issues in this church. I mean, they've got division. They've got preferential treatment. They've got like weird sex stuff happening left and right. And in the midst of all of this... Paul is trying to help them see what a hot mess that they're in, but also try to give them a way out. And he, he kind of names all of their problems. He spends 12 chapters kind of picking that apart. They're taking communion weird. They're doing all sorts of strange stuff. And he says, you know what, guys? I need to show you a more excellent way. Because the way that you're going about this has you trapped in the hot mess. The way that you're going about this is only adding to the mess, and it has nothing to do with the culture of heaven. And so Paul says, I want to show you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way, Paul says, is the way of love. The more excellent way is a way of love. The culture of heaven is a culture of love. That is the culture I want my son to be raised in. That's the culture I want my friendships to thrive in. When I wa- Listen, everybody brightens a room. Some do it by leaving and some do it by entering. Do you know what I mean? Everybody brightens a room. I, I, when I walk into a room, I want to brighten it and I want to bring a culture of heaven with me. I want to bring a culture of love with me. And so what I want us to kind of talk about today is how do we pursue a culture of love in our church? How do we pursue that in our families? But let's start here. I want you to fast forward this week to the Thanksgiving dinner that you're going to have sometime this week with some family members. Somebody at that table is going to make an offensive joke about some politician somewhere. Uh, The person making the offensive joke about the politician could be you, just so we're clear, okay? Um, Could be you. Um, One of your family members is just going to casually and laughingly 
bring up a really wounding and disturbing part of your past and talk about it like we should just all laugh about it because wasn't that so funny so long ago. And inside, you want to take your mashed potatoes up off your plate and fling them at their face. Like, you want the gravy to go because there's salt in there and it'll burn their eyes, right? Like, and, and, and listen, I find myself in these moments, you find yourself in these moments, and there are a lot of things that rise up in me, and I don't think any of them could be described as love. There are a lot of things that rise up in me with some of the crazier members of my family. There are a lot of things that rise up in me in, this, in my circle with some people that are a little more difficult to love. But all of those things could not be categorized as love. So how do we bring this excellent way, this culture of heaven, this way of love into ordinary places like your Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday? That's the question I have as we end this hot mess series. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There's some paperback Bibles under your chairs. This is on page what? Six what? 691. 691. Quick show of hands, neither here nor there. How many of you have decorated for Christmas? Love you. You are my people. Good job. We put up the tree this weekend. So actually, the the TV room, for those who have been in our house, the TV room is a winter wonderland. Everybody else is still a harvest party, right? So you can have the choice of your season right, which is very Northeast Ohio. First Corinthians 13, Paul says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't have others, didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had faith so strong that I could move mountains, but if I didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice or untruth is another good way of saying that. But it rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Where is it that we usually hear 1 Corinthians 13 read out loud? Weddings. Weddings. And doesn't that just call to mind, there's our wedding. That's me and Steffi baby right there. And uh, I had so much more hair then, right? Being your pastor is making me go bald. I don't know if that's the way of love or what it is, but there's not as much up here as there were six years ago. Um, when we think about 1 Corinthians 13, we think about love. We think about a bride dressed in white. We think about the groom and his groomsmen, all handsome. Weddings are this pinnacle of romantic love. And so when we read 1 Corinthians 13 at these weddings, we come to associate 1 Corinthians 13 with a romantic kind of love, with feelings. We, it, it calls to mind all of these Hallmark movies that we watch at Christmas time, where a young city professional goes home to take care of her aunt or her dog or her horse or her father, and while there gets wrapped up into some sort of contest like sculpting ice or gingerbread house making or a cookie crawl or a cookie contest, it doesn't matter, it just needs to be a contest, right? And in the contest, she is paired with this boy that she knew from when she was growing up, and in the process of, I don't know, making an ornament, their eyes meet, 
And all of a sudden, they are struck to find out that they are in love with one another. And then Santa shows up, performs the wedding, happily ever after, right? Listen, all of those movies are based on this romantic notion of love, this, 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 this ooey-gooey feeling that strikes us when we're least expecting it. We think of the word love, we think of 1 Corinthians 13, we think of romantic feeling, ooey-gooey love, but when Paul speaks of love, when the New Testament speaks of love, what comes to mind isn't a wedding, what comes to mind is a cross. What comes to mind isn't two people deep in the throes of affection, what comes to mind is a broken, bruised, and bloody Savior crucified for the world. The gospel of Jesus revolutionizes and redefines the word love. It takes this Greek word agape, which always kind of meant uh, this higher form of love in some way, shape, or another, and it, it, it dragoons it and it commandeers it to say, no, this word, this word means love of the highest possible order, the love shown to the world by God in the life of his son, Jesus. So John writes in 1 John chapter 4, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The highest form of love, it turns out, isn't on display at a wedding. The highest form of love isn't in promises made or vows made. The highest form of love is a public execution. The highest form of love is promises kept at overwhelming personal cost. Love isn't about being struck by Cupid's arrow. It isn't this thing that comes around the corner and catches us off guard. Love is about taking on a responsibility. Love isn't found in the pitter-patter of a heart caught up in flirtatious affection. It is the thud of a heart that makes a decision to take on duty. Paul couches love, he defines love in chapter 13, verse 8. He says, when I became a man, I put aside childish things. It's not a man-only thing. When I became a grown person, I put aside childish things. See, for Paul, for the New Testament, for those who follow the way of Jesus, love isn't a matter of being caught off guard by a sudden feeling of affection. Love is about a coming of age. It is about maturity. It is something we grow into. It is not something we fall into. Let me say that again. Love in the way of Jesus is not something that we fall into. It is something we grow into. The way of Jesus demands that we set aside feelings. We even may need to set aside the notion that love is a feminine thing. Some men struggle with that concept. And instead discover that love is willingly, diligently growing up to the measure of the stature of Jesus. Listen to how people talk about love. Listen to how you yourself talk about love. When I find someone difficult to love, that is not a fault of my own. It is a fault of them. The fault in love, in our thinking, is usually in the object loved, not in the lover. But Paul says, the way of Jesus says, if love is flagging and love is failing, it is not the fault of the, of the person I'm loving. It is 
the fault of my own heart. Paul calls us, the way of Jesus calls us, it demands that we develop a culture of love. Culture of love. Not of feelings which come and go. Feelings are, as a matter of fact, very good liars. Instead, it is the taking on of duty. It is the growing in the maturing into something. So Paul, in these verses, is trying to help us understand what love is. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me, right? <laughs> and, and so in the, in the famous words of the Night of the Roxbury, what is love, right? What is it? That's what Paul's answering here. He's saying, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. And what love isn't, right? And so he starts with what love is not, in these first three verses when he says, um, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I wouldn't have gained I would have gained nothing. If Bert Bacharach is right, and what the world needs now is love, sweet love, which is the song that I learned not from Bert Bacharach, but Austin Powers, right? Um, uh, then, then what we need to do is figure out what the heck this thing, this is very close to my wife, she says. Because what we often do is we replace love with other things. What we often do is replace love with other things. That's the problem in the Corinthian church. They have replaced love with these things that Paul is talking about in these first three verses. For example, they had replaced love with smooth talk. They had replaced love with spiritual talk. Instead of developing a culture of love, they were developing a culture of outsmarting one another with their words. They were developing a culture where they were working, running circles around one another with their words, even appealing to knowing a heavenly language, which the Bible also calls tongues. Paul says, even if you're the smoothest talker in the room, if you have the best command of the English language of anybody here and you don't have love, it's nothing. They've replaced love with spiritual gifts. They lorded over one another the gift of prophecy, which Paul, a couple chapters prior, says is the highest order of all the gifts. Some of them had tongues, and so they were using that in replacement of love and using their spiritual gifts to strong-arm one another. They were using spiritual talk. They were using spiritualism to, to push each other around. A really great example of this that happens in Bible college all the time is here's this couple that are dating, and after a little while, the guy says to the girl or the girl says to the guy, you know, I've been praying about this, and the Lord's told me to break up with you, which should leave the other person going, well, the Lord didn't tell me that, right? <laughs> But we've been in these conversations, um, they can happen a lot, where a person tries to say, well, I prayed about it, as if to say, I'm right, you're wrong, so shut up. They'd replaced love with knowledge, with intellectual capital. Uh, Paul uses, it, it comes out in the ESV a little better when he says, if I possessed all knowledge, if I possessed all knowledge, if I understood all the mysteries, that word mystery kind of is actually a little closer to how we use the word science today. Paul's saying it doesn't matter if you're the smartest person in the room because if, if you have a lot of smarts, then all you really have is a piece of paper hanging on a wall telling everybody you did some classes. 
It's not about intellectual capital. They'd replaced love with sacrifice and mercy and generosity as if to say, look at me, I'm the most important because I've worked the hardest. I've given the most. I've served the longest. I've been here longer than you. All of these things, talk, spirituality, spiritualism, spiritual gifts, knowledge, generosity, sacrifice, commitment, all of these things are good things, but they're all things that when we're in the middle of a hot mess, we appeal to to get our own way. So when we end up with a hot, mouse with a hot mess with our spouse, we don't just fight about the thing that we're fighting about. We fight about all the things. We just dump as many words on there as we can possibly add. When someone does something at church that we don't like, we are prone to recount our years of commitment and service. None of you can do that because I've been here longer than you. Oh, see, I just did it, right? When someone doesn't like something you did on your team, you say, well, I prayed about it and God says we should do something different. We hide behind our spiritual gifts as if they aren't gifts, but rights, rights to lead, rights to serve, rights to sing, rights to have influence. When we get mad at our adult children, we remind them of the sacrifices we've made to get them to where they are now. I pay X amount of dollars for your college. Who cares? <laughs> when we get mad at our little kids, we remind them that mommy and daddy know best and know better that we are smarter than they are. Why is the sky blue, mom? Because I said so. <laughs> if we find ourselves in a hot mess, we will try to use, I don't know how to describe this, our credentials, we'll try to use what we have in our pocket. We'll use our words or our intellect or our spirituality or our gifts or our commitment or our sacrifice to leverage to get what we want and all we're doing is we increase in the hot mess. And all of these things are good things, by the way. It's good to know words. It's good to pray in tongues. It, it's good to be smart. A lot of you are smarter than me. It, it, it's good to work hard. It's good to give a lot. It, it, it's, all of these things are good, but the reality is if they aren't infused with love, they're nothing. And when we use them to get out of the hot mess, this is all we're doing. And you can't hear a word that I'm saying anymore, can you? Because there is no way that I can talk loud enough for you to hear me. And we clash our cymbals and we clang our gongs and we wonder why the hot mess keeps getting worse and worse and worse or worse. But the noise gets so loud that we can't hear each other anymore. That is not a culture of love. It's not a culture of love. It's not the culture we want to raise our kids in. It's not the culture that we want to have in our marriages. It's not the culture that we want in our church. So Paul says, love is patient. He said that love is kind. It's not jealous. It's not boastful. It's not proud. It's not rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice in falsehood or injustice or deceit, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. And like there's a whole, listen, millennials, you hate that verse, Right? Because we, we have dissociated truth with love. And by the way, if millennials have done that, it's because our parents taught us to. So everybody, everybody loses on this one. Okay? Ironically, truth and love are interwoven. To lie is to not love, even if it makes the conversation go smoother. Love never gives up. 
It never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. What Paul is giving us in 1 Corinthians 13 is like a filter, a sieve, that catch all of the added crap that we add to our love. All of these extra ingredients that weasel their way into our love. Um, Clean eating, right? Clean eating is a big thing right now, right? We were living in Chicago, like everybody it felt like was like telling me about how their kids had never ever had a processed anything, which kind of secretly made me want to like give them a Twinkie when nobody was looking, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and so this clean eating thing swept the nation. We were in Chicago, everybody's obsessed about this. And honestly, Steph and I would sometimes, we'd be out to eat with people and they're like, I'd like this, but not this. Then can you make sure it's not this and da 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 And inside your head you're thinking, would you just freaking eat it, please? Would you eat the cheeseburger, okay? Fast forward a few years, we find ourselves in the office of Dr. Ted Suzelis, doctor of naturopathic medicine. He's using this device. It's got a brass rod. He's poking it on her feet and her hands. Like, I'm Googling to make sure it's not like Scientology machinery, right? <laughs> I'm like, because I'm like, the last thing I need is more demonic in my life. Like, we, you know, like this, we're, we're doing kingdom work. There's already oppression. We need to get out of it. Like, no. And, uh, and, and before you know it, we find out because of Steph's blood type, all this kind of stuff, we're kind of doing this with some of our journey of infertility and miscarriage. Um, she's not allowed to eat wheat, wheat, corn, or dairy, a.k.a. all that is good in the world, right? <laughs> wheat, corn, or dairy. And now we're these people. Like, we are the people now in, in the grocery aisle who are just standing there blocking traffic, which by the way, guys, have you noticed in Trumbull County, there's this thing where we like block carts at the end of an aisle and have a conversation. You're like, hey, excuse me, can I get through? And they're like looking at you like you're the jerk interrupting their conversation, which makes, you know, this is not love. This is not love, but it makes me kind of just want to take my cart and be like, you know, like take that you 85 year old woman on oxygen, stand in front of my beans again, I dare you, right? Not love, not patient or kind. And uh, it's true though, what is the deal? I'm not like looking to linger in Walmart, you know what I mean? I'm trying to get in, I'm trying to get out, I want to go home, like this is not my happy place. So we're these people that stand, we're these people that stand in the aisle now reading like the size one font of all the ingredients to try to find not just the, the obtusely noticeable corn that wants to kill you, but the secret ninja corn, like dextrose in everything, like modified food starch, which turns out is wheat or corn, both bad. They want to kill you, right? We're these people that do this, and it's given me an appreciation because what Paul is trying to do is help us look at the ingredient list of our love. He's trying to help us see the corn substitutes that sneak their way into your love, that make it sweeter but wants to kill you, right? If you grow corn, I'm sorry, you'll get over it. Um, these extra things, these additives, get into our love, right? So we're engaging in this conversation, and into that sneaks some boasting, into that sneaks some rudeness or some hostility, into that sneaks a keeping record of wrongs. Full disclosure, I was trying to figure out exactly what text we were going to do, and Jenna and our panel brought up last week, 1 Corinthians 13. I thought it was great. Because isn't that what you do in the hot mess? Doesn't it just rise so quickly to the surface all the ways that you've been wronged in a relationship? And don't you just want to take that little mental piece of paper and slam it into somebody's face? And Paul says, that's not love. That's corn syrupy love. Don't eat that. 
right? We're shooting for patience and kindness. We're trying to offer up truth. We're trying to be persevering and enduring through every circumstance. And yet, even in the midst of that, we kind of demand our own way because we say, you know what, if you would just let me love you in the way that I want to love you, our whole world would be easier. Love does not demand its own way. These things sneak into our love. The problem with our love is we have allowed other ingredients to slip into our love. And what Paul is calling us is to pure, unadulterated, organically sourced, non-GMO love. Love that can only be described as the love of Jesus. Love that can only be defined and described as the love of Jesus. Because here's the deal, y'all. Love is the only thing that matters, and it is the only thing that lasts. Paul says, love never ends. 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. You know, Maya Angelou has this saying, people will never remember what you say, and they'll never remember what you, what you did, but you'll, they'll always remember the way you made them feel. And that's what Paul is calling us to. That's what Paul is calling us to, to develop a culture of heaven in ordinary places. Listen, our duty as followers of Jesus is to love. It is the expectation of Jesus that we would be loving. Dan Drescher, who was on our panel, one of my spiritual dads, said this super well. He just said, straight up, God expects us to love one another. He does not make it optional. He does not make it part of something we do. He says, this is the thing we do. In fact, Jesus says, they will know you are Christians by the love that you have for one another. Love is the litmus test. Love is the only environment in which people grow and thrive. It is the only atmosphere in which the kingdom of God bursts forth. It is the only biosphere in which people are planted will thrive. Listen, listen, y'all. People will rise to the level that you love them, and they will fall apart to the level that you pick them apart. So if you've got a critical spirit and everybody around you isn't good enough, you need to have like a 20-minute look in the mirror. Because if you held other people to the same standard that you, if you held yourself to the same standard you hold other people, you would fall apart just as quick. What we really find in this list is that love goes against our nature. Boasting, pride, rudeness, demanding my own way. Listen, that comes as easily to my nature as eating a box of Kraft mac and cheese. You know what I'm saying? Love that is patient and kind, that, that, that never loses faith, that, is, that sometimes feels like, hey, Kyle, guess what? You're going to be on the starting line of the Super Bowl team, whatever it is, the Browns, never. Uh, you're going to be on the starting line of that team. It, it, I mean, it's just that foreign to my nature. And so then we're left with this high standard, this expectation, this command, this duty But hear me on this, there is no command issued for which there is not grace supplied. There is no command issued for which there is not grace supplied. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, he has given us the spirit of love and power and of self-control. You have the ability to love, you have the strength to love, and you have the control to love. There's no excuse not to. The reality is in the midst of our hot messes, we need to be reminded that inside of us, by faith, those who are called in the name of Jesus lives the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That we have every possible resource in heaven and on earth to do this. 
that I have been given the mind of Christ. When I want to pick up my mashed potatoes and fling them, I need to remind myself, I have the mind of Christ. When I want to bowl over that sweet old man who's just chatting it up with his buddy in the Walmart, I need to remind myself that I have the mind of Christ. When I am at an impasse with somebody that I love or I serve with, I need to remind myself that I have the mind of Christ. So I want to end with a practice. And, and there's a lot that you could do with this. You could go home, you could memorize 1 Corinthians 13, or you could write it on your mirror. And every time you go to have a conversation, you could kind of engage that filter and notice, is some demanding of my own way or is some pride kind of eking into the love that I'm bringing into this? You could go home and you could journal through, and maybe this would be helpful. Like, these are the ways that I use my intellect to push people around. These are the ways that I use my spirituality to push people around. This is the ways that I use my experience to push my kids around. Here's the one thing I want to ask you to do. What I love about 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is almost personified, right? And that's because it is personified. Love is a person. It is not some ambivalent, for, ambiguous force out in the universe. It's a person. It finds its reality and its concrete identity in the person of Jesus. Just like truth is a person, just like peace is a person, and so this love is personified. Love patiently waits. Love never gives up. It always leans in. It always presses in. It always believes the best about something or someone. It sees someone in the best possible light. So this week, when you're, when you're thinking about this difficult conversation that you're going to have around your Thanksgiving table, or you're thinking about the conversation you need to have with your spouse, or the conversation you need to have with somebody you're investing in and evangelizing and pouring into, one of your people of peace, when you're, when you're thinking about uh, somebody in your circle, circle leaders, that, that needs some attention, but you need to have a hard conversation with them, when you think about having a conversation, millennials, with your adult parents about, yes, this is our Christmas plans, and I know it's going to make you mad, but we're going to go be with my in-laws, and you just need to deal with it. What we tend to do in those moments is we tend to ramp ourselves up, right? And when I have that conversation, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to remind them of this, and I'm going to pull out this, and ha-ha, then I'm going to go nuclear, and I'm going to say this. What we need to think instead, what we need to game out instead is we need to think about that conversation. We say, when I have this conversation, love will say this. Love will ask this question. Love will stay silent on this thing. See, we need to take ourselves out of the conversation and we need to place love in it. We need to place love in it. And it's so hard. It is so hard. The more and more I understand love, the more I understand love and the way of Jesus, the more and more I come to understand that love, true love, the love that brings us together today, feels like a death because it is it is a death it is dying to the right to be right it is dying to it's not boundaryless by the way but it's not codependent but it's dying it's death it feels like death and what we what we trust in those moments is this Jesus whose love killed him but what we also trust is this Jesus who promises victory on the other side, who has our back. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has given us a spirit of love, of power, and of self-control. And if what the world needs now is love, 
by access to Jesus, we have more than enough to give away. Father, we um, just bring ourselves to you today and uh, just name the ways that we have let our love fail and fall short. And uh, God, we have been a clashing gong and a clanging cymbal. And in the process, frankly, God, what we've done is drown out your voice. And so would you mute the gongs and the cymbals in our hearts and our lives and help us to hear your voice? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just, um, yeah. I want to invite you to use some of this time to respond to the Lord. And uh, one of the ways that you might want to do that is come forward and receive communion. One of the ways you might want to do that is journal or pray where, where you're at for a minute. You can come forward for communion whenever you're ready. But I think it's important to be reminded that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he offered it to his disciples and he offered it to them in love and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. He offered his friends this cup and he said, this cup is my blood which is poured out for you and for many and forgiveness of sins, it's poured out. One of the lines of the confession that go with the liturgy for this said, when, when we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. And so what I want to remind you of today is the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord is for, there for those who fear him. The steadfast love of the Lord is there for those who call on his name today. And as long as you have a pulse, as long as you have a pulse, you are welcome to this table where the love of Jesus and the love of our Father um, is made tangible for us. So I need four people who would like to serve communion. You need to just come at me. That's one, that's two. That's three. And uh, young Dan, you get a break this week because Regine stood up right behind you and you were on last week, you're good. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. I'm not doing this. You are united in ministry to all the world. I, I'll, Steph and I are going to go to the back. If you need somebody to pray with you, we'll do that. Um, forgive my crummy sweater now. Um, but you'll come forward. Someone will rip off a piece of the bread. You'll dip it in the cup and uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So... The table is ready. Paul prays this little prayer in 2 Thessalonians. He says, may the Lord Jesus guide your hearts. No, may the Father guide your hearts into the love and perseverance of Jesus. May your hearts be led by love this week. May your lives be marked by love and uh, have a happy Thanksgiving. Love you so much. We'll see you next time.